This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. Welcome to the Eye on Education podcast on the Agenda with Sonal Rupani and Zina Zalamea. Sponsored by Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Today on the show, we focus on how technology is going to be affecting conventional education. Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar of the Abdullah al Guerrero Foundation for Education joined us to discuss why we shouldn't be neglecting our teachers. Jeff Maggion-Calda, who is the CEO of Coursera, was here in the UAE for the World Government Summit to talk about the future of education. He told us what trends he's been seeing in the online education space. UK citizens in the UAE may not have connected the golden visa with their children's education fees. However, it makes a big difference to be considered an overseas student versus a home student. And Fiona McKenzie of Carfax Education explained. There's a lot of fear around chat GPT and technology entering the classroom and how it's going to shape our children's learning. Microsoft Education's Mark East told us there's nothing to fear. And Raya Bichahari has set up with a great task to reimagine the future of education. She's founded the School of Humanity. She tells us why it applies to a lot of people who aren't suited to conventional education. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Welcome to Eye on Education on the Agenda. You've got Sonal with you alongside Zina Zalamea. And we're talking about some of the education headlines that we've been keeping an eye on. And of course, the World Government Summit this week has really been a, a source of a lot of information, a lot of things that have been discussed, a lot of big names in education that have been attending the summit from Coursera to Google to Microsoft and, of course, ministers from all over the world. And, Zina, there's a specific tool that was launched or sort of shown, a prototype that was shown just before the World Government Summit. I wanted to talk to you about this because as a parent, I wonder if you'd find this useful. Yes, it's called the Digital Dashboard. Excuse me. It's a digital dashboard of schools in Dubai with a map showing their locations, all of the types of curriculum and ratings by the Knowledge and Human Development Authority. And it was revealed at the pre-event of the World Government Summit. So this was revealed on Sunday. And this is a story that we caught in Gulf News. It's all by an organization, a company called ESRI. And so what they do is they work in geospatial information technology. So what that means is is that they were able to pull up a map. So imagine your community, your neighborhood, even mm-hmm. the city as a whole. And it would help both on the planning side, on the infrastructure side, so that government investors, for example, could look at that map and see where communities are in need of schools, but also for parents to be able to choose schools for their children according to certain factors. So I think this is pretty cool. You could go on this interactive map, filter by the area that mm-hmm. you're in, the curriculum that you want, the age group, for example, that you're looking for, a KHDA rating as well of that school. Mm-hmm. So you can sort of put some of your criteria, almost like you're on property finder and you're like, I want this one bedroom in this location, you know, being able to really drill down on your needs of a school based on a map. And then it can help you see what your options are in the vicinity. Exactly. Well, I'm surprised it doesn't exist already. But, you know, it's always welcome news because uh, there are so many factors that for parents, speaking as a parent, there are so many factors that parents look for when choosing the school for their child. And one of them is obviously location. So if there's a map that you can pull up and say, what is the cheapest school around Arabian ranches or around, you know, Damak Hills? And, you know, I can only pay this much. I want this curriculum, et cetera, et cetera. What do they offer? So all of that info 
will be part of the map. And I think that's very useful. What's one of the biggest factors for you when you're thinking about which school to send your kids? What are the, the top three, let's say? Location, school fees, and the community feel of the school. Mm. I bet that's probably what most people would say as well. Exactly, exactly. And that's why I've chosen a school that it's a cognito school, actually. And it's a very close to media city because I know that, you know, I'll be even when I'm not working with Dubai, I, I'll be, I will be working around this vicinity. So that's very convenient. I can do the pickup anywhere. Yeah, absolutely. Another story that's come out of um, the World Government Summit was an announcement of a hundred million Durham fund to establish digital education projects globally. So it's called the Digital School. It's an initiative by the Mohammed bin Rashid Al Maktoum Global Initiatives, along with the Emirates Red Crescent. They have signed a strategic partnership to establish this school fund um, to essentially enable People who have been hit by disasters, countries that are in crisis, you think, for example, in Turkey and Syria, of course, so many people that have been displaced that there are so many different priorities, but already you think about the kids and their schooling and what's going to happen to their learning priorities mm-hmm. and how they're going to be able to access this. So there is the hope that this fund will help support providing smart and flexible distance education in some of those countries that have been affected by disasters and by crises when it comes to their formal education. So the fund aims to provide educational opportunities for 1 million students around the world. It's all to support the sustainable development goals as well. So I think that's a really great initiative that we found out about this week as well. Now, I want to talk about school buses as well. Yes. You do the school pickup, so you're not so concerned about what's happening on the school buses at the moment. For this particular term, we do the drop-off in the morning and and the school bus takes them home. Oh, so you do use school buses. Yes. And how concerned are you about your kids' safety on the bus? I mean, would you like to be keeping eyes on them in the bus? Yes. You would? Actually, the first few days, I actually followed the bus around. um, (laughs) Crazy mother alert, (laughs) but I've managed to get hold of the bus ladies two mobile numbers and I just call her constantly to see if my if my son's eating sweets on the bus or on his iPad. Oh, no way. Do you think, do a lot of parents do that kind of thing? I think so. They don't yeah. admit it, but yes. <laughs> Everybody does it. We go crazy. I mean, it's our kids and my son is four. He's in FS2. Yeah, so right. I really want to know what he's doing on the road. Well, this is interesting then because this initiative out of Sharjah would save perhaps a couple phone calls. It would save whoever the bus lady is from your your incessant <laughs> questions about your kids. Um, they have – the Sharjah Private Education Authority has installed cameras and safety devices in 2,000 of their buses, which are transporting students to private schools in the Emirate. And the idea is to allow parents to monitor their children while they're going back and forth from school. So exactly what you're concerned about. Mm -hmm. It was part of different phases that they're launching out with this. So the first phase had GPS devices installed so you could know where your kids are to allow some tracking. And now they've actually moved on to cameras. So they've trained supervisors, bus supervisors in using these to help record student data. Um, Whoever the guardians are, whether they're parents or guardians, will be able to see when their children are boarding the bus and when they reach home as well. So the other thing they're doing is right now they've started again with those 2000 buses. But right now work is underway to register all school buses in private schools throughout the Emirate of Sharjah. That's amazing. And can you access that through an app? I believe it's through an app or a website, right? I believe so. Um, But it's great because the Sharjah Private Education Authority, SPEA, is going in the direction of 
the likes of ADEC, HDA, they're really introducing all these new sort of regulations for the safety of children. Not only that, um, they've also been very actively introducing um, new academic standards. They've, in, they, I, I believe, the first um, round of their um, school survey or, or inspections will come out in April. So that's something to watch out for. And a final story that we've been watching and one that we're going to continue discussing with our next guest actually is a panel that happened at the World Government Summit related to uh, education. And we had Sara Al-Amri, the UAE's Minister of State for Public Education and Advanced Technology, pointing out that this conversation that we're having about technology in the education sector is not the only thing we should be talking about. She said, you know, we need to remember that technology is a tool. When we discuss AI and its deployment into the education sector, we need to ask what are the needs today in every single classroom? And people on that particular panel pointing out that it's really teachers that are tasked with a lot of the work and that hopefully technology is something they'll be able to use to ease the burden. And one of the individuals on that panel was Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar. She's the CEO of the Abdullah al Foundation for Education. She's going to be joining us later on this hour. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. You are tuned into the agenda with Sonal Rupani. Zina Zalame has been alongside me as well. It is I on education. And when we talk about education, a big topic that's come up really in the past few weeks has been the focus on technology and AI, of course. It's causing such a rapid upheaval in education systems and how we're thinking about education we actually wanted to bring it back to basics a little bit because we all remember the impact that great teachers have made in our own lives. But are they getting enough attention when we have this conversation and this discourse around technology? To join us in this conversation is Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar, who is the CEO of the Abdullah Al-Gurair Foundation for Education. Dr. Sonia, thanks so much for making some time to join us on the agenda. Thank you for having me on such an important uh, topic. And Dr. Sonia, let me just start with the fact that we're talking about teachers. I wonder if there's one who you remember who made a real impact on you in your own life. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was fortunate enough to go to a very good school in Vancouver, BC. It was an IB school, actually. And um, if I can write well, I would have to say my grade 11 uh, English teacher um, who, who taught me that the first draft was never writing. That wasn't writing. And I think that that's interesting when we're looking at what we're talking about now with the technology. Um, But actually, she taught me that editing was the writing process and that if I wasn't getting my point across, it wasn't the reader's fault. It was my fault. And what a great lesson to learn at 16. Yeah, absolutely. And even as we have these conversations about AI and about technology, of course, All of this AI is being fed by content that humans have written, that humans have created. So that's not going to go away. When we're talking about teachers, what are some of the biggest challenges that they're facing at the moment, especially when we talk about technology? Well, I think that when we talk about teachers, we're talking about them writ large, and there's such diversity globally. You know, are we talking about the teachers in Finland who 
are the most qualified in the world, arguably, where they have, you know, 10% of their applicants to Teachers College actually get accepted. They have subsidized master's program. Or are we talking about the teachers who are struggling to even have electricity in some of the conflict zones? So it's it's really a very, very big question. Uh, question in terms of those. But if we're talking about kind of the technology piece, as long as you have kind of the basics and you're not suffering from the digital divide, then we're looking at teachers who understand content knowledge, pedagogical content knowledge, and then there's an AI or there's any kind of technology on top of that that is supposed to facilitate the content knowledge and the pedagogical content knowledge rather than hinder them. And I think that's where we're coming up with some friction. And, you know, it's interesting that you bring up the diversity of the different kinds of schools and the different kinds of teachers, because I think as we talk about working with technology, you have those schools and those systems that have the resources to invest in perhaps more expensive technological items is that going to create even more of a gap that we already see, you know, higher income people being able to get a higher quality education? What does that mean for people who perhaps don't have those resources as we go forward into this world? I have deep concerns about this. Um, and you mentioned the panel earlier. I had mentioned during the panel that in low and middle income countries today, learning poverty, which is measured as a 10 year old who cannot read or write or simple text and understand it um, is now at 70%. So that is a route that uh, that is very dangerous if we don't collectively as a globe decide that education for all is critical because what we have now is the learning divide plus a digital divide coming together and really creating almost a storm. And so I, I do have very deep concerns about what you've just mentioned. And now I know when we talk about teachers, as you mentioned, it's quite a broad spectrum, but let's go sort of middle of the road, talk about, let's yeah. say, the UAE. Do you feel like teachers today are sufficiently skilled and qualified, especially when it comes to teaching those topics that are relevant to future industries? Absolutely. Um, I definitely think that um, we're incredibly lucky in the UAE. Um, a teacher is licensed under the teacher licensing system. They have to pass through tests in Dubai. They have a portfolio assessment. There's a lot of eligibility criteria. Um, but the reality is, is a teacher is a professional like any other professional. You know, you could ask this of any professional and you'd get the same answer essentially, which is even if you're skilled today, you are not skilled for four years from now. The half-life of a new skill is four to five years. It has to be a continuous professional development and teachers have got to be allowed to have that time to understand how to use technology for the best impact on student outcomes. And if they don't have the time and they don't have the support systems, like any other profession, it will be a failure. And if, you, if I could just take one extra kind of minute to give an analogy, I personally would not have wanted a doctor in the last two years that didn't have professional upgrading or a nurse in the last two years that didn't have professional upgrading that had only been professionally upgraded three to four years ago because then they wouldn't have known what to do during COVID-19. We made sure that that professional training was given so that they could handle the new issues. It's the same thing. We need to make sure our teachers receive that professional uh, development.
And who can support that? Because, of course, the schools are under a certain financial pressure. Um, they're thinking potentially about how to make space or time for that. Does, is it kind of a government regulation that can make time for that and making that a more sort of enforced and mandatory process? There's definitely a government component, and we see this because if you look at places like Singapore and Finland, you see that there is uh, time carved out for teaching, and there's time carved out for professional development, and so you you do have a government component. But that said, we know that governments are, are localized. We do need to have uh, the private sector involved because they are the ones who are coming out with the technology. And I think there needs to be an onus of responsibility for proof of concept and training so that teachers can be trained on how to use it well versus having technology thrust upon them by vendors that are paid for, mm-hmm. um, but not the follow-up is all is not always there. So I think that there's a private sector actor piece on there, and then philanthropies um, as well have a role to play for those who are most underserved, which is what we do at the Abdullah al Harir Foundation. And Dr. Sonia, you were discussing the half-life of a skill gap, I mean, or of a new skill, sorry. What to you is the biggest skill gap between the current education system and, and what children are learning versus the skills that are needed in the workforce? What do we need to be focusing on a little bit more? So it's funny because most people will will look at, you know, the technology and the curriculum. I think it's the love of learning something new and the ability to have the confidence to fake. But if you've ever, if you think back to the teacher that inspired you or even the example that I took, um, there was a technical skill that she was put, still have to hone. I continuously have to work it. Um, but that ability to connect with a student, personalize it, that personalization of the learning journey um, needs to be almost systematized for all teachers. That's the most important piece for me. And, you know, we, we do have some, some technology that can help us. And we have estimates that when it's used well, it can reduce the load of of tasks that are non-teaching tasks on teachers by 20 to 30 percent. So I think that if we can release teachers from those minute tasks, they can really focus on how do I personalize the journey for this student who might have a higher, you know, mathematical ability and love it versus the student who is struggling with math but loves it and, and could do better with the right personal journey. And what do you think parents can do to support their kids in that, that love of learning and continually sort of wanting to learn more in a way that's also going to help them for their future? It's the everyday. I think parents need to admit that we don't know everything. I mean, I have a daughter and she brought me her math homework and I'm a biochemist by trade. I do statistics and I looked at the way they asked the question and I had to ask myself three times and then I had to do it myself. (laughs) So just that learning journey with her, um, be on the journey with your children and let them know that you're on a learning journey too and make it part of the everyday and respect your teachers. If the teacher doesn't know something, it's okay. They will learn too. So let's just make it so that we're all on the same team. Um, I think that that inspires that collaboration and that community feel of we're all going to get there together versus pointing I think that that's the that creates a negativity that some teachers, you know, have really struggled from and why we're suffering from a teacher gap now We're we're losing teachers because they don't feel that support. 
And of course, as we've discussed, so important to make sure our teachers feel supported. They play such an integral role, of course, in society. Dr. Sonia, thank you so much for joining us on the agenda today. Well, thank you very much for having me. That is Dr. Sonia Ben-Jafar, CEO of the Abdullah al Gharer Foundation for Education. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We are looking at education on the agenda this hour and, of course, through the rest of this show today, as we always do. Matt's been in touch to say, talking about new technology in education and our favorite teachers. My favorite teacher was my high school English teacher, Mr. Barrett. Instead of reading the set text in class, he would leverage new technology by wheeling in a big old TV into the classroom and just put on the film adaptation of the book on a VHS tape. Daydreaming on a Friday afternoon with the classroom lights off while some BBC costume drama played on the TV is one of my happiest memories of school. So it's not a new topic, is it? We are talking about education and technology and how they intersect. But for now, we're going to be talking about education for people who may be already in the workforce. Coursera offers online education for from professors in institutions. It's open access. It's a great way to upskill or learn something new if you're looking to make a career change, for example. And we're joined now by Coursera CEO, Jeff Magioncaro. Calda, who has been here for the World Government Summit. Jeff, thanks for joining us on the agenda. And thank you for having me. I'm happy to be here. You've got a brilliant background. I have to say our listeners can't hear this, but you've got a wonderful view of the Burj Al Arab. So it sounds like a beautiful setting that you're in at the moment. How has your trip to Dubai been? It's been great. I'll tell you, the hospitality in Dubai is unbelievable. When I was at the World Government Summit, they, they actually put me up in this hotel here. And it's of course, the weather is perfect. Everybody's in town and um, everybody wants to talk about education. So I am delighted to be here. Well, talking about education in terms of Coursera and the data that you have access to, what are some of the trends that you've actually been seeing in, let's say, the last six months to 12 months? Yeah, a lot of the trends are kind of a spillover from the pandemic. I mean, clearly what we saw as schools closed and offices closed is lots of people came to, to learn online and to work online. And now I think what's happening is people are realizing that there are new opportunities to get these jobs, these sort of digital jobs that have more flexibility. Often they have better pay. You can often do these jobs remotely. So the job opportunities aren't just based on where you live. You can get a job even in a different state or a different country from where you are. And so lots of people, I think, are excited about upskilling and reskilling to really change their kind of career trajectory to some of these new, more flexible digital jobs. And given the trends that we've been seeing as well in technology, I would imagine AI-related courses have seen a little uptick. Have they, or is it too soon, really, to see that yet? You know, it, it, it's actually been happening for quite some time. Uh, I think what's what's changing quite rapidly is that AI, for the most part, has stayed in the domain of data scientists, you know, building models that predict Lots of things. A lot of it's been predicting kind of what buttons are people going to click on. And when you're searching for something, trying to predict what kind of uh, search result you're looking for. But this new class of AI, which people call generative AI, uh, it's still based on prediction, but it's really being used in a sense to almost predict the content that someone wants to create. So you can actually generate pictures. You can generate uh, text. You can generate soon uh, videos and generate sounds and audio. So this new world of generative AI is certainly opening up 
lots more interesting possibilities and lots more interest in machine learning and AI and uh, these new classes of chat GPT-like large language models. And, you know, one of the trends that you mentioned is that people, in part due to the changes we've seen after the pandemic, are looking to move towards more remote learning and the things that they can do remote. What kind of data do you have on people taking your classes specifically to be able to make a career change? And where are most of them headed in terms of industries? Yeah. So uh, what's really kind of neat is people have generally become accustomed to online as being uh, kind of course-based, and often it's based on a topic of interest or a particular skill. Around 2018, we started offering what we call professional certificates. And, and these are multiple courses, five or six or sometimes up to 10 courses that takes 50 to 100 hours, but they really come from industry providers. Yeah, so I think this, the, the new class of training are these job certificates where people can do multiple courses and get certified for an entry-level digital job. That's what's most popular at this point uh, these days. And how much weight do these certificates hold? I'm going to be quite blunt here because do recruiters see this as equivalent to, let's say, doing a six-month intensive in-person or, you know, an in-person educational um, program? Well, you know, we just did a big study looking at these industry micro-credentials, asking students, are you interested in taking these as part of your college curriculum, something like 80% globally across 11 countries, uh, 80% of students said, yeah, I'd love to take these if they were part of my college degree program. 70% of employers said, I would rather interview someone who has a professional certificate. It might not be conclusive and guarantee you a job, but it certainly helps you stand out and give some credit to the fact that you've learned skills that are job specific. And, you know, when we talk about online education, online learning for, you know, children in schools, I think there have been some findings that perhaps it hasn't been as effective for many as, you know, in classroom learning. When you talk about making your courses as effective as possible and you're presenting them in the digital world, what are some of the thinking that you go through to, to make sure that people are really having an impact through these courses? Yeah, one of the things I would say is that for, for younger kids, a lot of the, the learning that has to happen is social learning. So I don't think the kids should be behind screens very often. They should be with their friends and they should be with the teacher. And I, I heard the, uh, the memory that you had. I mean, young people, a lot of learning is social. For working adults, it's a bit different. Working adults generally are trying to learn skills and get credentials. So when we think about that, we think about, A, does it come from an expert source? B, is it relevant to the job you're trying to uh, skill for? And then in terms of the learning experience, is it personalized? Is it interactive? Is it something that lets you engage in that content and not just learn the concepts, but use hands-on projects to actually build skills that you can show to an employer? Jeff, thank you so much for your time. I'm just going to say on a personal note, I'm a huge Coursera fan. I've taken a number of courses uh, myself. So I'm a really big fan of what you do and what you offer to people. Um, so we appreciate that. And thank you so much for joining us on the agenda to chat about it. Thank you for having me today. The voice there of Coursera CEO, Jeff Maggioncalda. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School, Guildford, Dubai. Passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. You are tuned in to the Agenda with Sonal. I've got Zena alongside me as well. And Zena, there's a story that's kind of been rumbling. We've been hearing some parents discussing, specifically parents who are UK-based, discussing a bit of confusion and a bit of concern as well. 
Exactly. Now, this is a story that's been raised by British parents in the UAE who are sending their children to university in the UK in the near future. And it has something to do with the requirements for university applicants who'd like to avail of uh, what they call preferential rates offered to British citizens. Now, this is more complicated than I thought. And we've received quite a few messages saying it's been a challenge to get those preferential rates uh, for those on a golden visa. And let's find out why that is. Uh, We're joined virtually by Fiona. Fiona McKenzie, who heads up Carfax Education in the UAE. How are you, Fiona? I'm good, thanks, Zina. Nice to be back with you all again. And Fiona, this is an issue, I have to admit, as a non-Brit, it's a little bit confusing to me, but can you explain to us a little bit about the process and the differentiation between applying as a home student versus an overseas student if you are going as a UK citizen to a UK university? Absolutely. So I think it's probably helpful to go kind of like back a little bit and explain the difference between uh, home status and international status. So all the higher education providers in in well, actually, even more complicated, it varies between England, Scotland, (laughs) Wales and Northern Ireland. But let's just talk about England for now. All the higher education providers in England uh, have to decide whether their students are home status or international status. And that has an impact on the fees um, because home status uh, fees are capped by the government at £9,250, whereas international fees are set by the universities and can be much, much higher. So, you know, in some cases you may find studying for an English literature degree um, at, I don't know, let's say Kent University would be £9,250 for a UK applicant. Um, But if you're coming in as an international student, it could be £14,000. If you were doing business management at UCL, it could be anything up to £26,000. If it's going to be medicine or engineering or a lab-based course, then those those courses uh, have a very high tariff for international students. So this is why a lot of parents who are living here are concerned. If they are eligible for home status fees, they're concerned to make sure they they get them. Um, So I think that's where the kind of debate comes in. Um, And you just flagged up the issue around the golden visa. So what's happened in the past, the kind of like the rules which are set by the Department for Education in the UK are that individuals must be what's called ordinarily resident and settled in the UK uh, for three years prior to starting university. That's like the kind of that's the kind of guidance universities are free to interpret that with a little bit of discretion but that's like the bottom line um somebody who is ordinarily resident is if they live and work in the area you know through their own choice but then this is where it gets tricky temporary absences including for work are permitted and what we've always found with the families applying from here who are entitled home status so basically you know their country of birth or their country of living on on their application form is that if they're coming from here this kind of period of temporary absence for work has is has kind of been fine in most situations because we've all been here on maybe two or three year limited contracts but with a golden visa suddenly you're looking at a 10-year commitment and that's not really defined as being a temporary absence that's much more of a kind of permanent absence so that's why we're starting to see some issues arising around this 
So, yeah, first of all, it is a money issue. The difference is huge. It can be up to £6,000. And we've just been... And much more. Much more. And we've just been talking about, you know, decreasing disposable income. And now uh, you've seen this with parents you work with. What, do you advise, what advice do you give to them? And you said that this is very much a case-by-case basis depending on which university you apply to. So how do you deal with this um, particular issue? So when you make your application, it's all done through a central form. It's called the UCAS form, University Central Admissions System. And on that, you have to put a whole lot of sort of personal information, uh, which pertains to where you've been educated, uh, where you're living, uh, that that sort of information. And that goes off to all five of your university choices. They evaluate that information. And then if they think that you are entitled to home status, then they'll just give you a home status place. But obviously, if you've been educated in the UAE over an extended period of time, then that's going to flag up a question mark about, right, well, they obviously don't live in the UK. So what's going on here? And at that point, the university will probably send you what's called a fee status questionnaire. And that goes to the parents and they have to fill that out. You know, honestly and transparently and it'll ask lots of questions about you know how long you've been there do you have any properties in the uk do you pay any tax in the uk um lots of different questions and each of those fee status questionnaires is different from university to university so there's no like kind of standardized kind of format for that um and on those kind of fees sort of status questionnaires they'll 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 take all of that information and then they will kind of evaluate that and decide whether they're going to um consider you as being like ordinarily settled kind of in in the uk so what one of the there's lots of different factors but what about uh, we got a question here what about parents work contracts even if if you have a golden visa even if the mum and dad have golden visas uh they have unlimited uh, for example three-year contracts and you know short-term contracts for example does that affect uh, the chances of the applicant to get preferential rates so if if you can demonstrate that you are only temporarily absent from the UK, then the university would have to consider that and decide whether that made you kind of like ordinarily resident in the UK, because this is just a temporary absence. And so the three-year contract technically has always demonstrated that. As I say, it's just more complicated now. If you've got a, a you know 10-year visa, then it shows that your indication is not to return to the UK within that kind of 10-year period, that you're more committed to here. But basically the kind of, you know, the, the whole reason this is set up is because, because the fees are much cheaper for UK nationals Mm -hmm. they want to know that you've been paying your taxes over that period of time which is subsidizing those fees so that that's what they're trying to kind of establish uh really um and so that's why these kind of fee status questionnaires go out what what we do say is that when it comes to filling out one of these fee status questionnaires if you can demonstrate that you have returned to the uk on a regular basis uh then that can be really really powerful evidence as to why you still consider yourself to be british nationals so things like uh you know keep keep copies of your kind of flight details uh you know any uh if you've hired cars in the uk pictures of your children you know with granny year on year on year kind of you know with the beach or whatever it is if you can demonstrate that you regularly return to the uk uh and that it is always going to be your kind of primary place of residence when all of this is over, then that, as I say, is really powerful evidence as to kind of claiming why you would be home status. Thank you so much for that advice. That's about all we have time for. Thank you for joining us and clarifying that subject matter for us. It's a pleasure.
That is the voice there of Fiona McKenzie. She heads up Carfax Education in the UAE. Definitely food for thought. Some, you know, unintended consequences, perhaps, if you're looking at a longer term visa and something to consider for your children's education. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. We've been discussing all things education on the agenda this Friday, and now we are joined in the studio by Mark East. He is Microsoft Education's general manager, and he's responsible for Microsoft's global education field teams and educational partners as well. I do you want to add that he was awarded by he was awarded the Microsoft President's Award by Bill Gates for his contribution to Microsoft's de- deployments in the UK education sector as well. So, Mark, good afternoon. Thanks for joining us in the studio today. Well, it's great to be here. And you were participating, we were just chatting a bit as you entered the studio about participating in the Future Education Forum at the World Government Summit. Tell me a little bit about some of the big takeaways for you, because there were a lot of leaders in education and it was, you know, a big topic of conversation at the summit. Yeah, it was a, there was a lot of discussion about um, the use of technology in education. And in fact, I think the highlight was the minister of the UAE actually using uh, chat GPT to actually write his speech, which he admitted <laughs> at the end. That was quite fun. Could you tell? Here's the thing. Is, as um, he was reading it, did you have a sneaking suspicion? Uh, no, I thought it was, I've got to say, it was very good. Um, I did actually, uh, I, I was uh, suggested I should answer some questions. And what they always do is they prime you ahead of time what type of questions you're going to ask. So I actually put those into chat GBT. And uh, they, they brought out 10 points, but I think there was more like 13. So, you know, chat GPT is not perfect, but it's, um, it's an extremely powerful artificial intelligence engine for information. And it's really going to be very powerful for use in education for sure. Yeah, and of course, that is the place to start because Microsoft has incorporated ChatGPT into Bing. That's something that we're just starting to see rolled out. But what does it mean for how you'll be incorporating generative AI into your educational tools and practices? Well, we've announced actually that we're integrating ChatGPT in a lot of our products. It's just that Bing is the first one that's being rolled out. Uh, In fact, um, employees at Microsoft are testing it right now. Um, So we have it uh, on Bing uh, before it generally is released. Um, but it really is, ChatGBT is really just artificial intelligence, and we already have artificial intelligence scenarios in education today. Here in the UAE, all of the students in the public schools are using Office 365 for their communication and collaboration, and in that tool, there is an option called um, Reading Progress, and we introduced that because during the pandemic, a lot of children didn't keep up with their reading Um, And to catch up with the reading, we needed to build artificial intelligence engines, which help teachers do that. So teachers today, uh, all of them have to um, provide reading tests to their students um, every week. Uh, And that's if you imagine how many students are in a class, that's a lot of hours where they have to take the student outside the class, typically or in an area, ask them to read a passage. And they're actually noting down um, how they're pronouncing words. Are they pausing at the full stops, for example, all of these things. But you can actually use artificial intelligence to do that. So there's a tool in Office 365 which will record a student reading a passage and it automatically does all of the uh, testing of that and passes wow. that information back to the teacher. Uh, but when we talk about generative AI, when we talk about things like ChatGPT, which are building things out from scratch, essentially, um, are there concerns? I mean, a lot of people are, have remarked that not only is it not perfect, there's issues with inaccuracy, of course, still with the tool, that it's not quite yet all the way there in terms of being really usable and functional. I mean, when you're talking about integrating that kind of technology into your tools, 
How do you put protections around some of those other issues? Well, one of the the key things I I should say is that this technology is never going to replace teachers. Teachers are still going to have to provide the sort of guide rails for how the technology is used and still manage the lessons in a way. Um, But the reason there's been so much press and and hype around ChatGPT is it actually is a very, very good um, robot, you could say, for chatting. Um, And its accuracy is extremely good. Um, and of course, if you if you really want to get it to, you know, be angry with you or um, or you know, if you push it to, for it to fail, it is going to fail. Um, but the technology enhancements as we go forward is going to make it you know very good. And as I say, if teachers use it in the right way, it's a very effective uh, tool for a, a teachers learning. And how do you see teachers using it? I mean, you've mentioned that it's going to be incorporated in educational tools. You gave me an existing example of how AI is being used already in classrooms. But when it comes to ChatGPT and incorporating this, give us an example of how we might see it deployed in a classroom. Yeah, well, one of the key things is the what we call the democracy, the democratization of education in that um, today in most schools all around the world, it's very hard for teachers to drive personalized learning. You can imagine they would have to have a learning plan for every single student in a class. Well, uh, ChatGPT, we're actually writing some uh, a development, a solution right now for the UAE, which will actually provide a, a coach to every student so that they can actually use it. So how would that be used? Let's say um, a student is try- wanting to understand something about a specific um, lesson. Maybe it's they want to understand gravity. Well, ChatGPT can pull all the information about gravity to them, but actually then put it in the student's learning style. One student might say, well, I, I like learning by watching, um, watching videos on YouTube. So knowing that, um, the, the, the uh, artificial intelligence will actually say, right, well, how can we bring in all of the things that the student likes and they obviously like to watch videos. So let's bring in that information in their learning style, which is videos. And it will bring all the relevant videos um, that will actually address the, the learning um, agenda of the student. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai. Passionate about creating personalised learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. It's just gone 20 past 12 on your Friday afternoon. The agenda is continuing our eye on education. And we've been discussing all things ChatGPT and the different ways they might be used in the classroom with Mark East, who is Microsoft Education, Microsoft Education's general manager. Mark, thanks so much for staying with us. And I was really intrigued by what you were discussing just a moment ago about how ChatGPT could be a little bit more of a coach, really, help with customized student learning according to what they need. I mean, certainly that's going to change the way the classroom operates if we go that direction. Yes, it will. I mean, it could actually fundamentally change the design of schools. Um, many people say that's overdue anyway, because the concept of teaching hasn't really changed since Aristotle's days, really, um, where you typically have a teacher at the beginning of uh, at the start, at the front of the class teaching students all, you know, consuming education. But that's all going to change with the technology and especially with artificial intelligence. Um, teachers will change. Um, they will probably end up being more like a guide to independent self-paced learning um, rather than the sage on the stage. They're the guide on the side. Right. Um, so I think, I think that's going to be important. Now, 
one of the things we have to do in Microsoft is help um, government systems train their teachers in how they can effectively... We were talking off-air about one of the big challenges that we're seeing uh, in education, and one of the big things that we've always um, been struggling with is how we can prove that investment in technology is really improving student learning outcomes. It's been really difficult. But it's now that we have artificial intelligence that can collect data... Um, quickly from many different sources and then present that to the teachers in terms of a dashboard, they can actually look at each individual student and explain to the teacher exactly what they need. They might have to have a different pedagogy. Um, They they may be struggling with dyslexia and technology can actually help um, for early years identify that much more quickly. Uh, And of course, then they can guide the teacher in the best learning plan for the individual student. So I think there's, there's all good things with using artificial intelligence, but you're still going to need a, need a teacher uh, to be able to uh, manage it and direct it. And yet, as you've mentioned, the teacher's role, potentially the classroom environment and how it's sort of structured is probably going to change if we incorporate these technologies. We know a lot of people don't like change. How has the response been from teachers and from you know school leaders? Well, school leaders here in the UAE, obviously the Minister of Education is embracing it and trying to drive the use of artificial intelligence in the schools. And I must say that the teachers here in the UAE, they're quite digitally literate. Uh, I remember during the pandemic, um, we actually um, provided Office 365 for all the teachers in one week, and they were up and running with it because they were well-trained and and were delivering it, actually in some cases better than private schools. So um, I don't think that um, we're going to see a challenge here in the UAE. In some schools in the world, of course, um, they're banning the use of um, ChatGBT. But I think that's mainly because they really don't understand it and they're worried. I just want to reassure every parent listening at home that actually it's a really good thing and there should be no concerns at all. Well, you mentioned parents that might be concerned. And a lot of people in terms of parents are apprehensive about how this new technology is going to impact their children's education. So tell us a few of the pros and the cons. We've discussed some of the pros already. But are there any legitimate reasons to be concerned? What are some of the things we have to be careful of as we approach this? Well, if we talk about ChatGPT itself, obviously, if a, if, a, if a student was to, say, be engaging with it for very long chat sessions, maybe two hours, and was forcing it um, to, um, uh, to be negative, then the, chat, the chatbot itself would potentially be negative. It's not going to you know, use bad language or swear at them or anything like that, but um, it, it could get you know it could be seen as the, the uh, as being angry uh, with the student, but very rarely and in most cases, obviously the student will have to really be pushing it to make it fail. Uh, but generally, everything will work absolutely fine, and um, it's only going to be a good thing for helping enhancing. It's like a teacher will benefit it, benefit from it because it's really going to shape their future and help them in what is really a um, fast-paced age right now in technology. Um, They really need to understand it because they're going to be using all all types of artificial intelligence when they eventually leave school. And in terms of the timeline, you've painted this kind of image for us of teachers being a bit more of a coach as students use this artificial intelligence to really guide their own independent learning. When are we going to see that? Because it is quite a leap from where we're at now. When do you potentially see we'll reach that stage? Well, as I mentioned earlier, we're, going, we're integrating ChatGBT specifically in all of our products right now. Um, the minister announced it just this very week that they want to use it in teaching and learning. Uh, and we're having early engagements right now with the ministry to see how we can definitely do that. And I think the, the key priority for me is how we provide training to the teachers and the students in using it effectively. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the agenda. It's been a really fascinating chat. You're welcome. Thank you. 
And Zena, how do you respond to this conversation as a parent? How do you feel potentially as your kids, you know, being in the classroom and they're really relying on generative AI and AI to help guide their learning outcomes? I mean, I'm not even there. It's quite scary to me, but uh, Mark, I think, has explained a few concepts and it's made me feel better. Right now, I'm at that stage where I'm, you know, snatching their iPads away from them and I'm so scared that their lives will be taken over by technology. But that is the way, the that's the direction the world is going and even the teachers have to adapt. So I need to embrace that and I just need to make sure that they're on the good side of it and not on the evil side of it. Yeah, we've actually gotten a nice little message in terms of this is the way that the world is going. Um, Somebody's messaged in to say that there are some students here in the UAE who've developed an AI-driven edutech app, which is interesting. It's called digest.ae if you want to check it out. Two friends from Repton School, Dubai, set it up in their final IB year. So congratulations to them. I'm just looking at his LinkedIn profile, Adam Nasser. Really impressive. He's, what, 17, 18, and he's doing all these things. Yeah, definitely go-getters. I cannot relate to that, (laughs) Zina, from when I was in high school. I was not setting up education apps. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. You are tuned into the agenda and for the next half hour we're continuing our conversation on all things education. For now we're turning our attention to an individual who's really looking to disrupt the learning system and has created an online high school and an online school that essentially is trying to break conventional learning. It's called the School of Humanity. Exactly. Now, Raya Bijari is a serial entrepreneur. She is the founder of the school, and she's been featured by the BBC as one of the 100 most influential and inspiring women globally, uh, alongside, I believe it was uh, Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez. Incredible. uh, And a few world-class athletes. I mean, we had her on the show maybe more than three years ago, pre-pandemic, and it's so glad to have you back, Raya. Thank you for having me. Always good to be here. Now, Raya, tell us a little bit about the School of Humanity. I mean, paint a bit of a picture for us about how exactly you're trying to disrupt conventional learning and what the platform looks like. Yeah, so we're an American online high school. We're licensed out of the U.S. as a school. We're going through international accreditation at the moment. And really, I like to think of us as not necessarily disrupting education, but rather reinventing it and creating an alternative model for learners who are dissatisfied with the current system. And at School of Humanity, uh, we uh, have a completely interdisciplinary curriculum. So we reimagined what we learn to focus on the knowledge and skills that are most needed for the future. Our learners uh, learn through tackling real-world challenges, through personalized learning journeys. Uh, there's a balance of synchronous kind of live sessions and asynchronous self-paced learning. And we currently have learners from the founding cohort, Reinventing Education with us. And this is something that's not like we were talking to Coursera earlier today. It's not just taking a couple classes online. I mean, this is really enrolling in this high school. Exactly. It's a full-time program. We do, we do, we have been doing summer school and other types of programs in the last three years, but really our mission is focused on offering a full-time alternative to the traditional system. And why do, why do people select that? I mean, there must be a perception of it being a bit of a risky alternative to going to a traditional school model in terms of being able then to apply to universities and higher education, for example. Yeah, absolutely. You know, what's interesting, though, it's, it's, 
especially risky and new or novel and unheard of in the region. But actually, models of education like ours have been gaining momentum in some parts of the world for a very long time. So, for example, if you look at mastery-based learning, which is a model of learning where you don't organize learners by age, but rather by ability, and learners can master the curriculum at their own pace, fully personalized, there are hundreds of mastery-based schools in the U.S., Um, You know, there's this famous Agora school in Netherlands. It's a school with no teachers, no curriculum, no classroom. Every student has their own personalized curriculum. The educators are coaches and there are no walls in the school building. It's like open co-working, co-learning spaces. So I do want to highlight that we're seeing this movement towards this model of education. It is relatively new in in this part of the world. It's interesting that you say that because, uh, you know, you started this pre-pandemic and so you, you obviously a few people enrolled then, but did you see it pick up during the pandemic? So that whole concept of online education and doing things differently, did that sort of, was that uh, highlighted even more during the pandemic? I definitely think it opened people's minds, right? Like suddenly a system so radical wasn't so uh, kind of scary to people. I will say, though, that most of the experience that we had of online education in the pandemic wasn't necessarily representative of what online education could be. Understandably, a lot of schools had to rush to suddenly move into Zoom and they just took the same thing that they were doing in the classroom into online. And that was, again, very understandable. But to really do online learning justice, you have to design it for online. You have to consider pedagogy in a completely different way to make sure it's optimized for the online experience. Now, what does a day look like? What does a day of learning look like for uh, a student at the School of Humanity? So it's a combination of workshops. Uh, We never lecture at learners in the live sessions. There's lots of games, discussions, activities. And uh, we do mentorship sessions with each learner. There's lots of really cool, fun things that happen. And then the balance of self-paced learning. So learners work on different units they've selected, different projects that they're working on. Um, We assess their skills regularly through different project-based assessments. And if we zoom out a little bit over the course of different terms, they pick different challenges that they want to work on. And so they learn by tackling real-world challenges. They're actively expanding a portfolio of projects. So it's a lot of real-world learning embedded into it. And what are they interacting with in terms of is there a teacher live with them on Zoom, for example, or is it a pre-recorded video message and they have certain hours in which they get together on Zoom and do those group sessions. What exactly is the platform in terms of the user interface for them? Yeah, so we do obviously have a learning platform where all the self-paced learning sits, all the assessments and you know data analytics and so forth. Uh, we really believe in community over content. So a lot of what we do is cohort-based. So uh, there are live sessions with educators that facilitate different workshops. We call our teachers learning facilitators because that's their role. Uh, We also do mentorship sessions with experts. So for example, this term, our learners in the food, energy, water security challenge are actually, you know, having weekly sessions with an expert in the field as part of that. And that's a really deep part of it as well. And I I would say a key part of our innovation isn't necessarily with the tech side of it. Like the tech is an enabler of what we do. It's really around reimagining the model, the curriculum of learning. Because I think a lot of innovation in education often gets focused on technology. But we also need to innovate the curriculum and the learning experience and the learning model as well. What's the biggest way in which you've rethought the curriculum? So one of the first things we did was really think about like first principles. So we wiped away everything we know about high school curriculum and said, what do we want learners to learn? And that's actually a really hard question to answer. Like it's, what is the purpose of education? How do we ensure learners live a life of human flourishing? How do we ensure they're prepared for the jobs and industries of the future? There was a lot of research into that. 
And so we based our curriculum not around subjects, but literacies. So illiteracy is a combination of knowledge, skills, and dispositions. So if you're financially literate, you might have knowledge in finance, you might have the skills of mathematical reasoning, and you might have certain dispositions or mindsets that allow you to be financially literate. So we have a collection of literacies in our core curriculum that we call the Human Literacies Framework, and that's really kind of one of the ways we reimagined high school curriculum. And is there a certain type of person or student that suits this type of learning? Um, because now I'm thinking, when you're as you were explaining things, I'm thinking my kids would never go for this type of learning. They need to be in the classroom with friends, with a teacher that really holds their hand. So, it, is it is there a particular student that suits this, or are you able to mold any type of student into someone that can learn at the School of Humanity? Yeah. I love that question because I think the big point I always make is we need different models for different humans, right? So School of Humanity serves a number of different types of learners, but there's other types of educational models out there that serve others. And ultimately, it's not one size fit all for sure. So we have a number of, let's say, personas of learners that come to us. We definitely get a lot of learners that are self-motivated, curious, they move at their own pace, and they won't need to accelerate at what works for them. We also get learners that are just so disengaged with the existing system. They need something more meaningful, personalized, um, more real-world learning to feel motivated. Uh, we also have learners that are serial entrepreneurs that have joined us because wow. they can actually work on the projects they want to work on. We have athletes that need that flexibility. So there's definitely a couple of different types and there's a diversity of personalities in the cohort. But those are just a few examples of when we serve students really well. And just to piggyback off something Zena said, what about the social element? Because when you talk about high school, yes, perhaps these students that you have in this cohort are interacting with each other digitally. But as you mentioned, they're from 10 different countries. So how do you ensure that they're getting the social needs that they have is just a teenager met. So it's a lot of it's a partnership with the family, really. And it's during our admissions process, we actually ask them that, like, how do you plan on ensuring you're filling in-person gaps? So some of our learners, they, you know, they're in sports and they have the friend group that comes with that. Uh, a few of the community, a few of the families are part of existing homeschooling and online schooling communities. So they have a network of friends already through that network. In places where we have a couple of learners, they rotate in each other's homes and they have that. So, you know, it, there's a lot of beautiful solutions to that and absolutely believe it's crucial. I mean, my vision for the future of School of Humanities is that we're a hybrid school. We might be online first, but we have learning hubs from around the world where learners can come together and get that in-person socialization and guidance. This is Eye on Education on the Agenda. With the Royal Grammar School Guildford Dubai, passionate about creating personalized learning experiences to nurture independent and future-ready young people. You are tuned in to The Agenda with Sonal and with Zina as well. We're joined in studio by our guest, Raya Bidshahari, who is the founder of the School of Humanity. And we were actually just speaking a moment ago, Raya, about how you decided to even come to this idea. Yeah, I mean, I was a student that loved learning and hated school. <laughs> I always felt like the time I was spending in school was getting in the way of my learning. And it got especially worse in university with memorization for semester after semester just for exams. And uh, at the same time, I saw that there was this movement of new types of schools and universities around the world that were truly reimagining learning, but it hadn't 
been accessible online globally. So really, a lot of it came from those pain points I faced myself. What did that yeah. mean for you to love learning but to hate school? I mean, what were you wanting to spend your time on that you just weren't able to because you were stuck in that kind of structure? I guess. Yeah, yeah. So I I was always a voracious reader and loved uh, watching documentaries. I loved learning by doing. I was lucky to have lots of entrepreneurial experiences at a young age, and and to be fair, until grade. 11, I had straight A's. And then I started doing more entrepreneurial things that I could, I learned so much from. And then my grades started to drop. And that was a big challenge emotionally, mentally, but also from a kind of time perspective. That's one of the issues with the traditional system. The curriculum is so crowded. It takes a lot of time for learners to memorize for all these tests. There's barely any breathing room to do all the things that we love. And tell us a little bit about the students that you have, because I guess they have varied reasons, as you mentioned earlier, for coming to you, but especially for those who maybe are disengaged with the existing conventional schooling system. How does moving to your school change that? Because they're still having to go through certain structures as well. Yeah, it really depends on the case. So for sometimes we get learners with special learning differences, you know, for a lot of learners who have ADHD, uh, the additional flexibility as well as the project based aspect is really much more engaging for them than sitting in a classroom, uh, you know, session after session. We often also get learners on the other side of the spectrum that might be highly gifted and they want that flexibility so they can work on entrepreneurial projects or accelerate grades at their own pace. Um, and sometimes it's just as a family, the values that a family that the family has is just aren't aligned with the industrial era model of education, and they want something much more innovative, interdisciplinary. And mind you, we also do a lot of like private public partnerships where private schools will reach out to us, or public sector will reach out to us with the same the satisfaction with the status quo, and we'll have a collaboration because we all share this mission together. Oh, wow. And uh, I have a question because your parents were obviously raised in conventional schools. They were used to the traditional type of learning and now they're witnessing a new kind of learning being applied to their kids. What sort of um, comments do you get from them? Well, I mean, overall, the feedback's really positive. I think a lot of our parents are saying they're seeing their child flourish. Uh, they love the curriculum and they, they love how applicable and relevant and, you know, to the, today's world it is. Definitely one challenge we often face is explaining the model. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it's not easy to do it in a 30 second reel on Instagram. You really have to explain how it works and also give a lot of background to this movement that's happening around the world with other schools and universities doing this model of education. So that's one big challenge. I know feedback we've received from families is under, but overall, I know a lot of the families uh, are, are super happy and we're really, they, we, I see them as part of the founding team. And what about in terms of students who are graduating from your high school and then they want to continue with their higher education, potentially going back to a conventional higher education system? How does your learning system correlate with some of the standardized tests that they need to do and some of the grade demonstrations that they need to show to then be able to apply to those schools? Yeah, so there's a lot of layers of things that schools like ours do to make sure we're, we secure uh, our learners' future for that. So one is obviously the international accreditation as a school is crucial. Two, we adopt something called a mastery transcript. It's a portfolio-based alternative to report card, but it's already accepted to universities. Some of our students will still do the SATs. They'll, they still might take a few APs, and if they really you know want to go down a certain path, they might need to, and that's okay, and we support them with that. 
And there's also a lot of internal benchmarking work that we do. So we benchmark our advanced credits against the AP. Um, our team is working on some benchmarking against the European qualification system, the Australian qualification system. And then the last thing to keep in mind as well is universities' admission systems are slowly changing. With the rise of homeschooling, alternative models of education, most universities in the U.S. are now test optional, actually. And even in the U.K., you're starting to see a bit of movement there with having alternative admission systems for homeschoolers, for instance. And so there's a shift there as well that I think will happen over time. And for people who are interested in this, how does the price point compare in terms of how much people are paying for tuition? Yeah, so we really position ourselves as being far more affordable than a lot of traditional uh, school offerings. So uh, right now our annual high school tuition is $4,800 a year. And then there's an add-on if you're you're looking at a hybrid uh, program with one of our learning hubs. And we also do financial aid. So we always have a number of our learners are, that are on full financial aid or partial financial aid. And that's one of the beauties of the model is we end up with cohorts with such a range of socioeconomic levels, mm-hmm. which really adds to the experience as well. And I just have one last question because we talked about your model of learning and your curriculum based around literacies. And I think there's long been a complaint that perhaps conventional schools haven't been able to adapt their curriculum to include things like financial literacy, perhaps not really getting there fast enough with things like tech literacy um, and you know computer science. How have you incorporated those aspects? I think starting from scratch. I know you know I think the challenge is, because those exam-based international curricula are so crowded, there's so much content on things, slapping it on as an extra curricula just doesn't do the job. And there's mm-hmm. too many things missing for us to do that with everything and expect the learners to have sanity by the end of it. Um, I would love to see those international curriculum providers literally start from scratch and reimagine the entire model. That's the only way we can truly incorporate all of those things. Raya, thank you so much for coming into the studio. It's been a really fascinating chat for us. Thank you for having me. The voice there of Raya Bid-Shahari. She is the founder of the School of Humanity, which I have to say, I'm really intrigued by. I know. Do you it want is- to enroll? <laughs> can Just I go- to see, to get the vibe. <laughs> can, I, can I go back to high school? Is that okay? I'd be down for that. I always think we should be able to go to college when we're like in our mid-30s. Oh, that would yeah. be a great time to do that. Sort of do two years when you're 18 and then do another two years Love when you're that. older. That's an interesting education model. <laughs> Don't you think, though? Because I feel like it's a great life experience when you're 18 to go off to wherever you're going off to. But I think in terms of the things, you know yourself so much better and what you'd like to focus on. I think you're on to something, yes. right? Exactly. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> I might be enrolling. I might be the next student of the School of Humanity. Eye on Education is back every Friday from 11 a.m. on Dubai Eye 103.8.